Hello, everybody. I'm delighted to welcome somebody I've known for, I think, at least 12 years, Jig, um, Jig Ramji. And um, sure, Jig has been in many countries and in many roles since we met. Um, we met at Deloitte when we were both working mm -hmm. there. Um, and Jig has been doing the rounds in, I'd say, <clears throat> quite senior talent roles, quite senior HR roles. Um, but I'm really interested, Jig, in the diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging work you've done. Um, but what I'd like to ask you first is to tell us a little bit about your career and life. Who is Jig Ramji? Ah, Marianne, thank you so much for having me, first and foremost. Um, so pleased to be here. Yes, I think I think maybe even longer than 12 years, might potentially. Be. Might, might well be. Time is flying. It really, really is. Well, you got um, married, you had kids, so all of those things happened while I knew lived you. Lived in many countries. Um, <laughs> but yeah, time is flying very, very, very very, very quickly. Um, Jig Ramji, who is Jig Ramji? Um, so I've been in the human capital or people space for pretty much all of my career. Um, a psychologist by background, like many of us, of course, uh, although harbored definite um, views that it would be education psychology. Uh, it's still education, but much more in the adult space and occupational psychology, of course. Um, but didn't actually do talent roles for quite a while when I first started. I did the rounds in HR and consultancy, like you said, um, worked for a startup in recruitment as my first job when startups weren't very cool. Uh, then went to Fujitsu and that's where I learned my, uh, learned my trade in HR or the people function. Then, went, then moved to Deloitte, um, what we talked about in terms of human capital consultancy, did lots of HR transformation, lots of organization development work, different industries, different sectors, both in London, in, in the Netherlands, New York, and then, of course, where I met you, Marianne, in Australia. Um, and then I moved to Macquarie and did almost the internal consultancy piece before we do, doing a number of HR roles at Bloomberg, where I spent uh, a number of years living and working in Singapore, uh, Hong Kong, and then moving back to the UK. Um, before taking their global talent role um, and then moving to the London Stock Exchange Group to be their chief talent officer as well. So that mm. was, that's me from a corporate perspective. But who am I? Most importantly, I'm a father of two fantastic, lovely people uh, who keep me honest and keep me real, uh, a little boy and a little girl. Um, and they, they are definitely my primary role that's to be as good a father as as i can be and of course to be as good a husband as i can be and, and so that's a little bit about me i love that you say that because i think that um we focus so much on people's achievements but i actually think the greatest achievement in life is a successful relationship and a successful um family happy family healthy mm. family so i want people to really understand that because nothing else works if that doesn't work um now Tell us a bit about, I want to get into diversity, equity, inclusion, mm. belonging. Jake, I feel like a lot of people misunderstand it. A lot of the work's not great that's done. And I feel like it's in a little bit of trouble right now. So mm. tell me where you think we're at and what you've done that, that you think is really breakthrough thinking. Yeah. Maybe let's go back a little bit, just because I think this context and history is quite important. I think um, even prior to you and I meeting, if you had said to me, let's talk about diversity, equity, inclusion. Probably when I when I came into the workplace 15, 20 years ago, people didn't want to talk about it. And especially people who would see themselves as not the dominant 
workplace demographic. Um, no one wanted to talk about it. And I think as a young person growing up in the UK, in Northern England, my grandfather, my parents, my kind of ecosystem didn't want to talk about diversity or inclusion. No way. N never. The, the advice was very simple. Get your head down, work hard. It was the mantra of any person growing up, I think in the UK, that was from a slightly different demographic. Just get your head down and work hard. We came to this country, this is what my granddad used to say, um, we came to this country to give you opportunities, don't waste those opportunities. But it wasn't mm -hmm. about diversity, it wasn't about inclusion, it was about working hard. And that was the mentality that so many of us grew up with. Um, whether it was our grandfather or our uncles or our parents in the background, that little voice on your shoulder saying, just get your head down and work very, very hard. Um, and so it was something that I think if we'd spoken about it 15, 20 years ago, I would have avoid, avoided the conversation because I didn't want to talk about difference. I just wanted to succeed. And therefore not talking about difference was your greatest asset in terms of being successful. The more people didn't see you as different, the more chance you had of succeeding. And there's some fantastic uh, research and um, knowledge around covering. Um, Kenji Yoshino is, is in particular, I read his book around covering, which really opened my eyes that so many of us cover and hide our true selves in the workplace and whether that's physical or whether that's changing the way you speak or whether not talking about things that are important to you and that's what I definitely did when I was younger in my career I didn't want to talk about difference I didn't want to be a role model I did not want to be somebody who would mentor other people I just wanted to get my head down and work hard and so I think the movement of diversity and inclusion, sorry, it's a long-winded answer. No, it's a fantastic it's thing. And I'm sitting here thinking all the immigrants and immigrants' children are going, ooh, we understand that so mm. well. And I, and, and I think the movement whereby it became more open to talk about difference and, and belonging within organisations was a huge transformation for people. And I think... It also made people feel incredibly vulnerable and it also made people feel incredibly uncomfortable and i think those are phenomenons that have certainly probably only been around for the last three to five years i think there was no doubt that organizations felt that they needed to tap into talent and therefore they needed to, to tap into diverse talent but it was initially focused very much on gender I remember when we were in Australia together, I think the only element of diversity that was talked about was gender. Always, always. And women on boards and women on everything. Even that was pretty uncomfortable as a woman, but um, the intersectionality of mm. woman or man with a, another demographic or religion is so complex and is only now being spoken about in research. And actually chief executive women in Australia do a lot of fantastic work, as does Div Palay. Mm. <laughs> but yes it's very recent it's very recent and i think and i think that's with the awareness piece and the education piece and and now organizations talking about inclusion much more than diversity which is the right thing there's two reasons why i think there's, there's incredible challenge at the moment one is there's a backlash 
Mm. And that backlash comes from people who feel when talking about inclusion, what we're talking about is diversity. And therefore, if you are the most dominant demographic, you don't count, which is absolutely incorrect. And I think this is where inclusion and belonging are the terminologies that should be used in the future. So that's one area why I think there, there is there is challenge. And then the second piece, which is when you then talk to people who are different, whether that is gender, whether that is LGBTQ+, whether that is ethnically uh, diverse individuals, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, the list goes on, you know. They're hearing, they're hearing things now, Marianne, that organisations have this deep desire to be much more inclusive and create belonging. But then what's happening is that their personal experiences don't marry up to that narrative. Yeah. And therefore, the expectation of individuals now is that actually you took a fantastic narrative within this organisation, but my, my employee experience, my personal experience doesn't fit into that and actually this is really distressing and much more challenging now because my expectation and the reality is so markedly different whereas quite frankly 15 to 20 years ago there was no expectation there was less mm. of a challenge Mm. It's so true. Um, I, you know, I talk to so many people, uh, whether they're neurodiverse, <laughs> I've seen that where I've had a group of 50 people, one person where I've been told the person's neurodiverse and, and I really manage the training session for that person. But then an executive comes into the room and delivers something. And this person, of course, goes on with the question because they really want the answer. And, uh, you know, and then the executive gets upset because nobody briefed the executive to to be inclusive in the room. And so it just all blows up and and all these things happen. And somebody who transitioned in an organization that said, oh, we're so open, you know, for transition yes. people transitioning gender, but then had a horrible time uh, with the team they were in. So not dealing well with it at all. So yes. it's so true that they are just these ongoing, I've been the first woman in many male organizations, you know, where the guys decided it'd be great to have a beer bus as our end of year, you know, party. And I'm thinking the last thing I want to do is be <laughs> on a beer bus with drunk men. You know what I mean? It's like, whoa, it's just the, the lived reality is just so different. You're so right. And I think one, one of the things that I think that, that really hit me personally um, in terms of my awareness and education of all of these things was, and this was many years ago, I was on a panel and someone asked me a question around the moment I felt the most out of place within an organisation. And it was actually, um, it was a great question. And, I, and and it made me really think about some of those experiences in my life or in my career where I felt the most different. And actually, it, it was contrary to what people would have assumed. It was when I was interviewing for Queen's College, Oxford. Uh, so this is whether that was a viable university place for me. And I went for the final interview stage at Queen's. And the people I met who were prospective peers or even people who would be... Um, looking to get that, that same place as myself they were so different to me mm. so different and this was not around race this was not around gender this was just around socioeconomic background mm. and um I, I told the story of everyone I met and by the way they were all lovely people so mm. I didn't walk away from it in, in a negative way I 
had a fantastic two days there at Queen's College and met lots of amazing people, people I've never met in my life before, types of people. And I told that story on a panel. And so I talked about socioeconomic diversity. I was a working class kid from East Manchester who just went to a regular school um, and had just never encountered people from private schools and who had such, such wonderful backgrounds and extracurricular activities that I could never dream of. And because I told that story, I had all these people write to me afterwards and said, mm -hmm. thank you so much for talking about something that mm -hmm. no one talks about. Mm -mm. And I did not expect nor appreciate the number of people who look at things like invisible demographics, like socioeconomic diversity, accents, these things that people don't mm. really think about, and the impact that it would have. And said, I truly now understand why inclusion is really, really important, because it's not just the typical things that um, you normally associate with diversity. It's actually so much broader than that. And I think that's where we, you know, so long, long story short, where we're going wrong is we're not thinking of intersectionality. We're not thinking about all of the different areas of diversity and truly focusing on that one key area, which is inclusion and therefore creating belonging for individuals within an organization. Mm. We're focusing on targets or percentages and it's become transactional rather than real. And I think mm. that's where we're, we're going mm. wrong. Yeah, I, I honestly agree with you. You know, um, it's interesting. I think the other thing I've really tried to understand, having grown up in South Africa in the apartheid system, <laughs> which is a fabulous thing to do um, when you're a white woman, um, is to understand and take responsibility for my own privilege. Um, because, you know, I've seen with, you know, I have, I have sons uh, from Zimbabwe and I've seen that, you know, um, they could be beautifully dressed in their suits and walk into a bank mm -hmm. and it's kind of, mm, what is he doing here? <laughs> is he coming right. to rob us? Um, and I can wear my, my worst track suit pants with my oldest shoes and I walk in and nobody looks up, you know, and it's, it's people just don't get that. And I have really tried to understand over time, you know, that it's so unconscious, but it's so there. And, you know, we really have to understand privilege. We have to understand allyship, how important allyship is. Um, and then inclusion and belonging. And belonging. Some people belonging doesn't mean you don't, be, but you don't belong less. You know, you still belong. <laughs> mm. Others are just also belonging now. Um, there's space yes. for everyone. And so, tell me about some of the interesting things you've done around this topic in the organisations you've been in. I think the unconscious bias piece is a really interesting one. Um, so to pick up on that, and again, this is this. The biggest lesson for anyone in this area is never make any type of assumptions. Mm. So my assumption was, I think everybody knows about unconscious bias. Mm. What a dangerous assumption to have made. Mm. But, you, you know, and, and we did a lot of work at Bloomberg around unconscious bias, as an example, and, and subsequently as well uh, at ELSO. And I was just a little bit, eh, I think everyone knows this. This is not, this is not going to, turn the dial or change um, things. But actually the number of people that simply were not aware of unconscious bias or privilege or mm. the, what the role that they can play from an ally perspective mm. was fascinating to me. Mm. It was just fascinating. And it had such a material impact on so many individuals. Now, I think this is an area as well that you cannot use data in a way that perhaps you can with other people-related um, solutions, i.e. 
if something doesn't necessarily have a hundred percent hit rate, is is it bad? No way. Because if you are getting people to reflect and think about this in a way that they've never done before, even if you get a twenty percent hit rate, you're doing a fantastic, fantastic yeah. job. You're moving the dial twenty percent. You know, you're. Yeah. you're it's it's like uh, a lot of people. Noah Noah actually um, uh, that Rabinovich uh, that's it's was at Meta recently. Uh, not Meta, um, um, Moderna. He said to me, one percent better, Marianne, one percent better. You're just doing one percent better. One percent better a month gives us twelve percent better at the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It makes a difference, and I think mm. these are the types of things that not only make a difference immediately, but they'll make a difference for a lifetime. Mm. And if those mm. individuals can share their experiences too. I think can make a significant impact. One of the things that I think was quite in innovative related to allyship and unconscious bias was, uh, and this was a uh, something that we did at the London Stock Exchange Group, was we actually created a leadership program for our um, black and Hispanic colleagues, but also um, within that cohort had a number of senior leaders who were not of that demographic, mm -hmm. i.e they were part of the program but they weren't black or hispanic now we got a lot of pushback and challenge on this mm, i can totally imagine this because i was like why would you take places away mm. from mm. our black hispanic colleagues but what we were trying to do was we were trying to create an ecosystem mm. within that program that looked at why we were not truly creating meaningful change within organizations and actually having that cohort of individuals being mixed allows almost a micro ecosystem to be created yeah yeah and that impact that it had on some of those leaders in terms of the role that they can play mm. in terms of transformation change allyship decisions they made etc cetera, etc cetera, was so enlightening for those individuals that we would never have got that if we had solely black and Hispanic leaders on that yeah. program. Yeah. That would create yeah. personal development and growth for those individuals, yeah. but it doesn't create an ecosystem of change. I agree. So they'll go back into the system, right? They'll just, sorry, they'll go back into the system without mm -hmm. the system having changed or any exactly. allies in the system. Yeah. But very true. And I think that's systemic change is hard. Systemic mm -hmm. change has so much to change within it because some of these some of these processes some of these unconscious biases some of these traditions from years and years and years have taken place over decades if not centuries and so creating systemic changes is a is a massive effort and you can only do that as a collective rather than as individuals mm -hmm. so that that's i think those are the types of things that we really need to start to explore within uh within the area that actually let's not keep doing the same thing over and over again let's try and think about more innovative ways of creating that uh, systemic change for organizations but also economies and also for individuals who sit within those organizations and economies a hundred percent and even think further into your client groups right into your supply chain not just the people in your organization yes. but really think about this if you want to think systemically um that would change a lot of things won't it um at a systemic level. Um, I know we know why it's important, but can you remind people why in 2023, getting belonging and inclusion and allyship, right, is so important for an organization? 
Well, I think one of one of the things that's been so interesting over the last uh, perhaps COVID was a a trigger to this, but I think it was happening even before that. I think individuals are choosing organizations now that get this right. Individuals are certainly from the early careers in the folks that I talk to really care about this to the point where they're not making, they're, they're saying that I do not want to be part of a system that doesn't take this seriously. And on top of that, we are becoming much more global as organizations. I think global organizations need to ensure that they think about things like the belonging and the employee experience. If they truly want to tap into the world-class talent that's available in the markets that we want to operate in, it's not going to fly that they see an organization as incredibly Eurocentric or Anglo-centric or deeply American and not global. And they will self-select out of these systems. And I think the entrepreneurial nature of so many of the young people I talk to now and the bravery as well, which I, um, you know, which is phenomenal Mm -hmm. and something that I don't think I would have had when I was in the early stages of my career to go and do their own thing Mm -hmm. or to think about different ways of creating a living. Um, There are many choices and options available to individuals and therefore if organizations do want to attract talent, and most importantly, not just attract talent, but mm. retain that talent, mm. they really need to think about these things. It's so true. And I'm thinking of two, they are female examples, but I'm thinking of two horrible things that I've read and heard in the last week mm. alone in 2023. And one is that um, the McKinsey report that for every one woman that is going into executive roles to leave. So we're just sliding backwards. I would not be surprised if that data holds for other groups as well. Mm. No, for I sure. If you've seen, have you seen that? Uh, it doesn't surprise me. I think organizational trends that I've seen recently um, would support that hypothesis that there is a talent drain of certain demographics, certainly at the point where you almost feel that they could move into senior leadership roles, mm. they self-select out. Mm, they do. They do. The system does not make them feel that they can belong or live the lives that they need to live in those roles. And there's such an organizational pressure that, you know, we talked about it at the very beginning. What's the most important thing? I'm a very staunch believer of this, that, you know, I'm a father first and Mm. everything Mm. else second. Mm. If something is contributing to jeopardizing that position for me, then that is not the type of organization or the person I should be. Mm. And when people have those decisions to make, mm. they are making what I would now describe as the right decision mm. to that town. And mm. I think in the past, people would have not done that. And mm. I think we've got a real challenge across organizations in, in most countries now, whereby they are really struggling to retain talent. Yeah, I agree. And I want to go to something even worse, which Mm. is this lovely NHS report that came out that one third of female surgeons are sexually harassed or assaulted on the job. (laughs) Whoa. How do we even start to deal with that if we want to create a safe workplace for DEI and people of other other talents and, 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 and demographics and beliefs? I mean, Marion, it's so scary. Mm. I don't think that's the only example. I think there's still examples in the in, um, 
in, in show business and military here in Ireland. There's so much out there. I mean, on, on one hand, I think there is, it's not positive. I think more people are speaking out on these mm. matters. Still not good enough, but people are speaking out. And I think whereas some of this would have been suppressed uh, many years ago, I think that there are brave individuals who are speaking out against them. That's a positive. But I think when you look at the prevalence of some of these things, mm. including the report that you um, articulate, it's frightening. Mm. It is frightening. And people are struggling to create the right environments within these industries and organisations. Um, and again, with a fear that should they do some of those things, that they most important asset from a talent perspective, i.e. .e., in this scenario, surgeons, um, would leave the organization. Mm. And I think there is, a, there is a culture of how much can we get away with or suppress rather than deal with quite challenging environments that exist or have existed for a number of years. And when you're trying to attract that talent, those stories are everywhere. I mean, I'm sitting here and thinking, how are they going to attract future talent with a report like that coming out, mm. you know, of any diverse background? Um, because they will they feel safe um, to do that kind of work. Um, and, and just the fear of perhaps mm. being in that environment mm. in the future. What, what other, and again, these are, I've got other choices or options, so perhaps mm. I wouldn't mm. choose those. And many mm. of these things are um, subtle. We mm. make subtle decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, we are perhaps from an evolutionary perspective will always avoid those riskier situations. The amygdala takeover perhaps still exists, but albeit in a slightly different way. Yeah. Now, I want to just shift it now to you. Um, yes. In your career as a leader, as somebody who's done work, it's probably a bit innovative that probably made people a bit uncomfortable. What are the beliefs and behaviors that have kept you going? What have you learned about being resilient? You know, what what do you take with you as kind of the things that you stand by? I think I think this evolves for every individual in their career. I think we I think we evolve the values that we hold dearly. Um, and I think for me, that's all. That's always been a bit of a journey, um, and some of it's you know educating myself on why certain things have such an emotional toil on me and others don't. And I and I know very clearly now for me things like trust and honesty and integrity, alongside wisdom, doing the best possible thing you can. I just values that I hold incredibly dear to me, and I think when those values are compromised, hmm. I think. You know, there's internal turmoil because again is is that an organizational thing is that an individual thing is that an environment thing um and i think over over the years when some of those things happen there, there's almost decision points for you how much do you believe in someone something an organization to try and um change some of those pieces and how much is it about your decisions to walk away from those those environments? And I think early on in my career, I'd always fight and think I think it's a very positive regard. I can change this. I can make a difference. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think as you as you evolve, you start to recognise where you can make the difference and those environments which you should walk away from because you simply cannot. And I think it's really really difficult, Marianne, because 
we always go into organizations roles because we want to make the difference mm -hmm. and we're all fighters we're all successful because we want to do up the very best that we can do. and i think it's hard to walk away from something you build you build affinity and i i'm, I'm no different to yourself in that regard i build affinity mm. um and i think when you have to walk away from something it is like a relationship you have to walk away from it and it takes a little bit of time and it takes a little bit of effort and it takes yeah. a little bit of soul searching um but what I would say to my young self is be very clear in your mind when you know that you cannot make the difference, that the right thing to do is walk away. Yeah. And oh, my goodness, I can honestly agree with you, because I remember my one of my professors saying, Marianne, the more purpose driven and values driven you're going to become, <laughs> the more courage you're going to need, but also yeah. the more your boundaries need to be quite firm about what you mm -hmm. will and will not do and where you will and will not be. Um, and it's going to lead to difficult decisions, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't follow that purpose and value set quite clearly. Um, but it is very hard. It yeah. is much easier to, to put your head down and just let it all go. And, and a lot of people choose that. And sometimes their circumstances require that. But yeah, um, it's hard. I, it? I agree. It's really, uh, it's really hard. hard. It's very hard. But honestly, I wouldn't do it any differently. I will <laughs> take the bumps and bruises and scrapes that I've had along the way. Um, but I would say I'm less naive, Jake. I'd say that I was probably, I always say I was an optimistic idealist and now I'm a hopeful realist. Do you know what? I think, I think people go on that journey and I remember um, talking to people um, when I was early on in my career and I was very much the idealist like yourself. And, they, <laughs> and all jokes aside, people would say to you, oh, this organization will bang that out of you, don't you worry. <laughs> Absolutely. Ten years no, here. I've, I've heard that too. I've yeah. heard that too. Um, now, listen, I think a lot of people would be very interested, Jake, to follow mm. you, to link with you. Where can they find you? Are you in LinkedIn? Where are you? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in LinkedIn. Um, I think my username is jigramji1980. Um, I think most people will be able to find me on that. Uh, similar Twitter handle as well, if, if you're interested. But uh, I'm predominantly... Uh, would post this, the same things on LinkedIn and, and Twitter for sure. So uh, yeah, if anybody wants to follow me, happy, happy yes. to accept and uh, yeah, love to build my network. Mm, I think a lot of people would be very interested um, and I'm sure you're going to get messages just off the spot because of people going, oh yes, been there, done that. Oh yes. Oh, um, because I think it triggers a lot of things for people, yes. things that are not spoken about and seeing somebody who's very honest and vulnerable. And I thank you for that because people need to hear it and see it. Um, now, of course, we, we have any final thoughts you'd like to share for people about what they, if they, if they are feeling a bit insecure, this is not quite working for me, or I don't know where to go with this DEI thing as a, a DEI practitioner, because mm. I feel like even, there's a lot of people under pressure, even the universities in the US are making interesting decisions. <laughs> so where are we? I, I, I think, yeah, I think, I think the one thing that none of us should ever do is keep, keep things to themselves if they're feeling deeply uncomfortable about something. I think regardless of wherever I've worked or whichever environment I've been in, there are always those individuals that you can rely upon and trust to have those conversations. They may not necessarily agree with your opinions, but I think I think having those conversations and um, and almost having an objective lens on them really, really helps. I 
again from from many years ago would would never do this but the more i've grown to feel more comfort in my discomfort i think there's so much value you can get from talking to mm. people about some of your thoughts your ideas your concerns your challenges and that is the best way i feel to unearth your own uh, boundaries as well so my advice and last thoughts like whether you're de and i practitioner or not if there are things that make you feel uncomfortable there are lots of people who will share share your views share your values and those who may not necessarily share your views but are still will share your values and have an objective com a conversation with you do not keep yeah. it to yourself no i, I agree with that yeah um it's too lonely isn't it it's too lonely. Very lonely um Yes, and, and don't go into survivor mode because a lot of us, because of how we grow up and if you, you know, have to fight into a system that's different, mm -hmm. you go into survivor mode so you pull within and it's very lonely and scary. Um, we have a fun question. I actually don't mind it. Yeah. Um, you can't take your wife or kids in this instance, but if okay. you were stranded by yourself on an island, what's the one thing you couldn't live without? One thing I couldn't live without, well, with no wives and no children, I think it would, of course, be quite lonely. So what would you what would what would keep you company? I think something that you could play music or listen to podcasts, something like that, I think would probably be the nicest thing to have in on a on a nice tropical island. I'm assuming, obviously, from a survival perspective, food and Food and water exists already. That's, yeah, that's no, we decision. can we can fish, <laughs> we can fish, and we can we can desalinate the water. Um, although I have had a few people, so I'll at least take some salt with me so that I can salt the fish. Um, but that sounds great. So, so you'd like to keep learning, keep growing, even when you're on the island, keep connected. So you'll just have some solar power um, and some kind of gadget that you can connect that to the Wi-Fi because there's Wi-Fi, of course, on your island. Um, that's fantastic. What I take out of this conversation is um, I think there's a lot of performative DEI things being done, mm -hmm. um, but you really have to get to know the individuals. Um, belonging doesn't mean others don't belong. Um, it just means that we create space for everybody to come in and be their best selves, and that leads to higher performance. <laughs> As we know, better decision-making, um, better attraction and retention of the talent. Um, but think very broadly about um, diversity as well. Make sure that we don't have these narrow and be aware of your own unconscious bias because we all have it. If you don't know what it is, please listen to things on it. Read something about it. Understand your privilege. I've read books on privilege and actually contacted my friends afterwards and said, oh, did I say that to you as a white person? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean it. And they're like, of course you didn't mean it, but you know, thanks anyway for, for at least admitting it now and knowing that, you know, that you don't say that kind of thing. <laughs> because you do. You just it's so strong in all of us. We have to accept mm. that all of us have this in us. Um and I think that the the leadership program I really like, where you've brought a real mix of people in with senior people. Um, I was in a group the other day where the right. CEO, um, male CEO and a couple of males sat in with a group of women and really listened and asked great questions, asked me in front of all of them how they can be better allies. And we had a work session with them, you know, from everybody. And I gave great examples and they got it. And they were like, oh, that makes sense. I think all those things, the conversations, but let's not give up on DEIB. Hey, let's not give up in organizations. It's so important. 
No, no, it's incredibly important. And I think the thing that really resonated for me when you summarized that was this is incredibly complex. Mm. And I think the day that organizations try and make it try and make it uber simple and focus on one or two things, I think that's the challenge. Yeah. Uh, inclusion and belonging are the right terminologies for organizations to focus on because I think that's how we get everybody part of the same journey rather than try and focus on one or two different areas which again feels exclusive rather than inclusive. 100%. Oh, thank you so much, Jake, for spending the time with us. Um, as always, it's fantastic to talk to you. Well, thank you so much for having me.